0: Greetings, I am glad that you are all here. Today we come to the second chapter of James, the letter is found towards the end of our Bibles and it's also available in our bulletins on page 10. Now I often use an illustration to help us lean into our text, but I don't have to here because James does that for us. James is going to place us in a scene at church. Two men are going to walk into the service. The first is going to be wearing gold and dressed in fine clothing and the second is Who comes in is wearing shabby clothing and he doesn't receive the same gracious treatment as the first fellow. And James is going to ask us if the attitudes and actions of the people there are consistent with their profession, that they're a church holding to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to imagine that scene. Imagine two people walking into our service before it starts. And I'm going to flush it out just a bit more because James here would understand something different than we will probably hear. They would have understood this differently because in James' culture, clothing indicated power and status far more than it does in our day. I actually knew a millionaire who used to wear pretty shabby clothing. And I know a lot of poor people at the food pantry who had finer clothes and jewelry than I had. But in James' day... Poor people could not wear the clothing of the elites. Only a high-ranking person in the city would be able to wear the outfit described here, the gold and the fine clothing. So I want us to imagine how would we respond if Mayor Rod Robertson would walk through these doors into our church. At the same time, a homeless guy parks his grocery cart outside and walks in. How would you be prone to respond to each of these? would we honor them the same? Do we ever feel that we're better off than a person who lacks something that we have? Do we ever feel better about ourselves when we're with a person who has a lot of status? What goes on in our hearts when we judge by appearances? Why do we not want to love some people? And how is failure to love a denial of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, James is going to explore that because our thoughts and our actions actually reveal how much we've come to grasp the gospel. James chapter one, starting, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this word. We pray that you might reveal wonderful things from your law this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're finally reaching a new chapter in James. And it's always appropriate to remind us that chapter breaks are a recent addition These were added later to help us navigate our Bibles and to help us to locate passages. But when James wrote this, he did not view this passage as a new chapter. This was a whole letter that James wrote for churches to read aloud from beginning to end. So the first years are going to make a connection to what came before. Do you remember what came before? Verses 26 and 27. James told us what true religion is. A person... Of the true religion, and religion is not a bad thing, as some folks say today. A person who is truly religious, number one, keeps a bridle on their tongue. They watch their words. Number two, they care for orphans and widows. And number three, they don't get stained by the evil of this world. For James, these are the three evidences, or the three tests, of true religion. And now James follows with a command in verse one, to not show partiality or favoritism, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If we profess to be Jesus, people, we cannot favor the rich and powerful more than we favor the poor. And the scene he describes here is actually a failure of all three tests. Did you catch that? The poor man was insulted by the unbridled tongue, he was also neglected, despite his obvious needs, and the church was stained as it fawned over the temporal glories of this rich man. Now, failure to care for the disadvantaged is James' emphasis here. We can see that's the more important thing. And, and the widows and orphans, they're actually just representative of the marginalized groups that James is concerned about. And James, his point is the Church of Jesus Christ is not a place where prejudice is acceptable. I'll use that word alongside favoritism, because in it you hear prejudging prejudice, and we are prone to prejudge people based on their appearance. But when we do, we undo with our lives what we profess with our mouths. It's kind of a heavy section. James is getting pretty serious here. James didn't put a chapter break in, but did you notice there's a change in tone from chapter one? In chapter one, there are zero questions in 27 verses. In chapter two, You have 10 questions in 26 verses. So I was reading this. It kind of felt like James was my mother after she got a call from the school teacher about how I was involved in a bad scene on the playground. Chapter 2 felt like getting home from school, walking in the front door, and mom's there waiting to confront me with question after question after question about my actions, not ones for me to answer because I was supposed to simply think about them as I got lectured. That's what this feels like. James is very concerned about showing favoritism. Why? Because of who his half-brother is, Jesus. And the fact that folks in the church are professing to be his people. Who is Jesus? Verse 1 actually tells us. Jesus is Lord. And in the Septuagint, this is the same Greek word translated Yahweh, Jehovah. Jesus is Almighty God. And Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah the anointed one, the human son of David sent to save, and he is the Lord of glory. James is actually saying he is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God, Jesus is man, and he is the Lord of glory, which brought to my mind Exodus 40, where the glory crowd came and rested upon the tabernacle as Israel journeyed through the promised land. Can you imagine what it would be like To have this weight of glory dropped into your presence, this kabod. I think that would make utterly clear your amazing privilege to be awed that this glorious God is your God walking with you through this broken world. And that's really what Christmas is about. Harps enraptured by the awe of God's glory coming to dwell with us. Glory that no minor glories of this world can hold a candle to. We live knowing that God is with us, going with us on our life journey, and the presence of his glory in the midst of the church changes how we ought to live. If we take in, if we appropriate, like to the core of our very being, what this means to believe this, that the Lord of glory is in our midst, (laughs) this next scene should be unimaginable. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Here's James' first question for us. If we determine by appearances that some should receive preferential treatment, have we not at that moment drawn inner circles in our midst and become evil-minded judges. If I'm the poor man, I'm thinking that. Not only do I experience being shunned, I also get to witness the way I should have been treated. Let me ask you, you ever felt like you don't belong somewhere? You ever walked into a church that promised to be welcoming and you walk in the door and you can tell by the way folks look at you or don't look at you or the way they avoid you? that you're not welcome? You feel like you're six inches tall or you feel like you're the plague? It's the experience of many folks I've talked to in this community. It's actually the number one reason why people don't go to church. That's what they tell me. And I get it. So I've walked into churches where I haven't felt welcome. I went looking for my loving Lord and I got poo-pooed by partial people word that James uses for partiality is actually a word it seems New Testament writers made up. It means to receive the face. To make a judgment about a person based on their externals. And that's a no-no for James. Faith and favoritism are incompatible. And by inserting us into the scene James is actually saying we all have this tendency to gravitate towards certain types of people. I'll be honest, I want to say to James do you have to be so harsh the way I'd put it is, yeah, some people are just a little more difficult than others. In fact, James, I'm willing to go so far as to say I can be the difficult one. But James says this is going some, more deeply than some sort of external clickishness. True, some people may be more difficult for us to socialize with. But James asks, are we willing to look beyond the superficial to find out about this person's true needs? That's the point. This person has needs, his true needs. Partiality is not godly behavior. It's a trait of the old self. The word that James uses for making distinctions is actually a word from chapter 1 where he spoke of double-mindedness or wavering between two opinions. We love Jesus, but we love the world too. We love the cross, but we also love comfort. That divided love is what makes us into judges with evil thoughts and here's what James is getting at. The reason we show favoritism is we are thinking about what we can get, what we can gain. Favoritism is about fixation on minor earthly glories. A rich man, a person with status and wealth, well, he can do more to help us out. On the surface, he requires less physical and material help, right? He won't deplete us, and in fact, we can benefit from him. Friends, aren't you glad that God doesn't look at us that way? Romans 2.11 tells us the God we worship shows no partiality, which makes sense because how can you profit Almighty God? God doesn't need you. God doesn't need any of us. And yet, he is still pleased to give us the kingdom. He's impartial, which we hear next in James' next question. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? The answer is yes, of course. God chose Israel, a slave nation, to be his people. Jesus loved those with no status. The woman at the well, blind Bartimaeus. Think about the sick. Think about the lepers. God's choice is always rooted in his grace. How dare ours be rooted in in our greed. Now this is not an endorsement of poverty mysticism, which for being poor means oh you automatically merit God's favor. No. God's promise, did you notice James says is for those who love him. Being poor alone doesn't gain you eternal glory. In fact Jesus loved many powerful people like Nicodemus and Jairus. What does this actually reveal that Jesus loved both rich and poor? Jesus saw all people as equally poor spiritually. That's why he came. That's our true need. In your sin, the image of God was marred so that you became unlike him. You were born in this world as a sinner in spiritual poverty, which is why the gospel is such good news that in love, Jesus came to save us in our poverty and to give us what we really need. Every person that you meet has needs that nothing in this world can fulfill. We're all born equally poor spiritually, and this must direct our actions as we interact with others. Favoritism is actually neglect of the rich man because he's not being viewed rightly either. His deepest needs cannot be met by his wealth. And the church is a family. Did you notice James says beloved brothers? And we know favoritism doesn't do well in a family, does it? What happened when Jacob favored Joseph? above his other brothers. How did that work out? We must love all equally who come here, regardless of wealth, status, race, gender. I've actually been reading the biography of an amazing Presbyterian pastor named James A. Bryan, who in early 20th century Birmingham worked tirelessly to bring the gospel to the poor and needy. Here's what he said. He said, I believe that every person I meet could be my brother or sister in Christ. He actually received the name Brother Brian because of that. Because everyone came to see him as their family. He refused to cater to the rich. He always trusted God to provide. And there's this wonderful story of him being robbed at gunpoint as he's going through one of these rough neighborhoods. And Brother Brian willingly gave the man his watch and his wallet. And then he asked the man, could you wait for a minute so I could pray for you? And the man came to Christ <laughs> and returned Brian's possessions. You see, Brian remembered the thief on the cross who came to faith. Christ's cross changes everything. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Rich man, poor man. Verse 6, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? James, next two questions get at the situation of the early church. James is actually one of the earliest letters. and In this time, Christians had no status, little power, and the elites oppressed them across the board. So to cater to the rich was actually to help those who were hurting the body of Christ, those who were blaspheming the name of Christ. That's why we need to think hard about powerful people we support and endorse in our day too. Would we dare to tolerate blasphemy in order to advance our agenda. I dare say it happens daily in churches who profess to hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. James is actually quoting here from Leviticus 19.18, but he adds that it is the royal law. Why is it royal, James? James. Well, first, because we are heirs of a kingdom. Second, because a king commanded it. Jesus was once asked in Matthew 22, what was the greatest commandment? Remember what he said? It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he added to love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hangs all the law and the prophets. I would also add it's third, the royal law, because a king then lived it out. You know the Greek word hang, Jesus used there, is the same word used in Acts 5.30, where Luke describes the crucifixion. Jesus being hung on the cross. Basically, what's being said is you could put a metal spike through this Bible and it'd swing on a pendulum between love of God and love of neighbor. And the same was true when Jesus was spiked to a cross to fulfill the law of love for us. He loved us as himself. And those two words, as yourself, they're really helpful for us because how do you love yourself? Is it because you're so in love and you're just so attracted to your... No. We tend to think that. It's about feelings, but... I think Alec Mott here is really helpful he says that's not the way we love ourselves no we often love ourselves by our disapproval of ourselves think about when you got up in the morning and you looked at the mirror you might have seen some things that weren't very pleasant to look at so what did you do you went to the sink you cleaned up your face you made yourself looking good because you disapproved of the way you looked so to care for us, It's about caring for others. It's about helping people if there are issues. Loving your neighbor as yourself means yeah, there's things we're going to disapprove of but we're going to actually help them to get better. It's that kind of desire. Verse 9, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. This is pretty simple. James has just said, are any of us tempted to think that selective obedience is acceptable to God? Jesus, I know you said not to show partiality and I didn't obey, but look at how I obeyed all these other rules, so I'm all good, right? James says that's absolutely absurd. Next time you get pulled over for speeding, try to tell the cop, don't give me a ticket, I didn't murder anyone. No. You see, for James, the law, it's like a glass mirror. It's a flawless hole. And one failure is like a brick tossed at it. One sin destroys the whole. Or it's like a doctor exam. If you hear the doctor say, oh, you've got a healthy heart, you got healthy lungs, kidney, a liver, but I'm sorry to say your pancreas is failing. You don't walk out saying, Oh, I'm I'm pretty good. I'm out. No. If your pancreas is going bad, that's a fatal condition. One bag organ, you die. Now, James stresses this, not because the Christian is under law. We're under grace. But James will say in our final verses, we will be judged by the law of liberty. And James understands that the church is the witness to the world of who Jesus is. That's the big point. How do you think people today are going to discover the gospel, the good news? Will they, oh, I'll read this Bible from one end to the other. Oh, and afterwards some books on theology to help me understand it. Well, that would be great. I wish they would. But it's not likely. They'll come to church. And their experience here will tell them whether or not this is good news. They see some people are not loved here and others are, well, then they're going to come to believe there's some people God doesn't love. That's why James will end by saying, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Does this surprise you to hear that you're going to be judged? Some Christians think. Oh, I won't be judged on the final day. That's not true. We won't be condemned on the last day, but we will be judged. Our works will be made manifest, and what works survive the judgment will be rewarded. And those which are burnt up will be lost to our sorrow, even as we are saved. We read about that in 1 Corinthians. So what are we to do, Joel? Well, we're to look to the law which for James is a wonderful help to us. In the last chapter, remember, he called it the perfect law. Earlier here, he called it the royal law. And now he calls it the law of liberty. Friends, the law is a wonderful thing. The longest psalm in the Bible is a love song to the law of God. Remember, the Father has given us new life through his word of truth, verse 18 from the last chapter. The law shows us our Father's nature. And as newborn children freed from sin's bondage, we are actually now free to obey the law, to live as God created us, and this is liberty for us. So we are to live it out by how we speak and act as though now, those now freed to do good in this world. And James ends with a negative and a positive statement about mercy. If we are merciless, we will not be shown mercy. This is akin to what Jesus says. If we don't forgive others, neither will the Father forgive us our sins. Friends, what it comes down to is if we are merciless, it reveals that we are not mercy full, like we have not taken in the fullness of the mercy that's been given to us. If we did, we would with joy do the same for anybody who comes through these doors. And then James concludes with a positive. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Whose mercy? God's mercy? Our mercy? Yes. Yes. How does God's mercy triumph over judgment? We see it at the cross, where sin and misery was not overlooked. Rather, it was absorbed by Jesus as he took the judgment we deserve. Mercy triumphed over judgment, and while we're not Jesus, we too can show mercy and watch it triumph in our day. Let me ask you: Do you believe this? Do you believe our acts of mercy can win souls for God? I conclude with an illustration. There's a movie called To End All Wars, based on the true story of what the Japanese did in Burma and Thailand to prisoners. Who they forced to construct a railway through swamps and malarial rainforests en route to conquer India. Over 80,000 people died constructing this railway. That's 393 lives for every one mile track. The movie is actually based on the book Through the Valley, through the Valley of the Kwai by Ernest Gordon. Gordon was one of 60,000 Allied POWs, and he spent time in three different prison camps. And at one point, because the conditions were so bad, he became very ill and he was placed in what they call the death house. Here's his description of it. The death house had been built at one of the lowest points in the camp. The monsoon was on. The floor of the hut was a sea of mud and the smells. The smells of tropical ulcers eating into flesh and bone. The smell of latrines overflowing. The smell of dirty men, untended men, sick men, of humanity rotting, humanity gone sour. Men lay in rows, head to feet. One of the worst features in this jam of humanity was the loneliness. One never knew one's neighbor. Everyone was crowded together, but there was no brothering, no communion, no fellowship. Gordon, a self-professed agnostic, was dying. So many are in this world. And then something happened. Some small acts of mercy led by one man in particular began to take place. Men who had been fighting each other for the meager rations began sharing them. And this one man in particular nursed another back to health by giving him his rations. And then he died of malnutrition he died because he had been giving all his food away to save this other soul this man was a christian and suddenly when the prisoners saw what this christian had done laying down his life for another man a miracle of grace began to occur these men suddenly began reading their bible together and the atmosphere totally changed Stories of mercy and self-sacrifice began to loom larger than the Japanese cruelty. Revival took place as mercy after mercy began to triumph over judgment. And the whole camp was transformed even the guards as many bowed the knee to the Lord of glory. So I end with this question. Will we choose to relate to people by what we may gain? Or will we lose to relate to people that they might gain Christ. Let us ask God for help in this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the greatest mercy that's ever been seen on this planet in the sending of your Son, our Lord Jesus, into our world, take on our flesh, and then to offer up his flesh in exchange for ours so that we might be made new creations in him. We thank you that we've seen that mercy triumphs over judgment. And we want to see mercy continue to triumph throughout this world and in our community and in our lives. So we ask and pray that you'll give us your spirit in new measure. Help us to take in more and more what we profess that we believe. And Father, we want to pray that in fact, the acts of mercy that we show to others, that in them others might see Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, that they may come to bow the knee and discover what it means to be eternal heirs of the kingdom that you're so willingly able and want to grant to any who will simply come. Thank you for this church, thank you for this time in your word. Leave us not. Let us not leave here unchanged. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.